Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, hosted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, a bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to Hassab Carbs wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the World Series Preview Edition of the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, and so is my colleague and my co-host, back in Houston, ready for some World Series action soon. Not at the beginning of this week, but later on, it's Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. I'm not back in Houston for long. Actually, not back in Houston yeah. at all. I'm still in Atlanta, but I'm going to <laughs> okay. L.A. tomorrow, and I'll be at the first couple games, and then back in Houston for... For the uh, the middle three, so wow. three if couldn't necessary. Just, couldn't just let Zach Cram or one of our LA colleagues. That's cover going those to. Okay, we're carpooling. Right. We're uh, yeah. we're looking forward to to braving what Zach says is a very high auxiliary press box at uh-huh. Dodger Stadium together. And, How's uh, the the forecast for tomorrow looking? Is it still like three hundred and seventy five degrees? <laughs> like I uh, when I LA wonderful place. Yeah, when I told Mal or when we were talking about me going out there, I looked at the weather and I was like, "Is this a joke? Like it's just barely <laughs> starting to get to the point where I can wear long pants at home." And now, yeah, yeah it's. I might not get to a point where I, I wish for the cold of last year's World Series where Grant Brisby saved my life by giving me hand warmers <laughs> before game five at Wrigley, but uh, I'm still forever in his debt over that. But, you know, we might get to a point where I'm wishing for a return to those conditions. All right. So we're going to talk about the World Series, not solely the weather forecast, although maybe that'll come up again, but we have to talk about Astros Dodgers and that's going to be a lot of fun. We'll get to that in a moment, but we should close the book on the championship series. And if I did not know better, if I did not know that you were at a wedding on Saturday night being forced to dance or at least pressured to, I would have thought that was you behind home plate in your Brian McCann mask calling curveball after curveball because Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Lance McCullers curveball is, if not your favorite pitch in baseball, it's it's on the very short it's list. It's up there. I I love Lance McCullers, and we saw uh, in the in the championship series my two favorite attributes of Lance McCullers. One is his arrogance. He has that <laughs> like this is just this is not something that the people who came into baseball the way you and I did are supposed to like think is really awesome about a, a pitcher but like he's got that I want the ball but in a really convincing way like he truly believes mm-hmm. that he's the the best pitcher on the planet so it was and because of that like he's had three uh postseason appearances that weren't in uh in a mop-up role and he's been awesome in all of them and the second mm-hmm. my second favorite thing about uh about Lance McCullers is his curveball which yes. you know you would you would be surprised you know Brian McCann and I are both sort of you know we are we are husky bearded white men but we are not <laughs> literally the same person so you know but we were on the same li- wavelength on Saturday night yeah, if you had been catching that game, that's exactly what you would have called, which is curveballs. Just keep throwing curveballs. In fact, McCann at one point at least stopped calling pitches and just nodded because mm-hmm. why even put a finger down? Because it was really an incredible display. And, you know, game six, that was after the last time we spoke when we discussed momentum and the meaning. I don't remember therein. what you're talking about. <laughs> no recollection of that conversation. <laughs> we'll skip right over that. So it looked 
looked like the Yankees might have this thing sealed up or at least have the upper hand. Although, of course, going back to Houston with Justin Verlander on the mound, it was far from a sure thing. And Verlander did his thing, did not throw a complete game, but didn't really need to this time. And that was it for the Yankees in game six. And then game seven seemed much more winnable in that it was Charlie Morton and Lance McCullers versus CC Sabathia. But it was just an incredible display of breaking ball reliance by the Astros. And I mentioned this in my game story right after. This was the most curveball centric game that has ever been pitched as far as we know, at least going back to the beginning of the pitch FX stat cast record a decade or so. And I don't know whether anyone before that ever would have relied on their curveball to this extent. It's really incredible. And we talked to Tom Verducci on this podcast a few months ago about how the Astros have been at this forefront of a, a trend toward maybe throwing more breaking balls or getting away from the idea of the traditional fastball count and having to establish the fastball and everything works off the fastball and we mentioned Lance McCullers in that conversation and the Astros the two of these pitchers combined through 60% curveballs in this game which is by far the most that a team has ever thrown in a single game the previous high was just over 50 and McCullers of course threw 41 of his 54 pitches were knuckle curves which even for a, an individual pitcher with at least 50 pitches thrown that was by far the most it was just an incredible and obviously it worked extremely well so say, yeah. there's no reason not to keep throwing curveballs yeah it really took the yankees by surprise you could say that they really threw him a curveball <laughs> oh good one good one yeah i it made me wonder like are we doing baseball wrong is this would this work like how how sustainable is this strategy just throwing curveballs because i mean you can see how it would work for a while and obviously it's not a secret that these guys throw curveballs especially mccullers among the most curveball reliant pitchers in baseball but just not to this degree and i just wonder i mean he finished the game with what 24 28 mm -hmm. something like that consecutive curveballs which you would think that at some point a hitter would just say okay curveball coming i guess i'll i'll take a pitch here or i know how this is going to break and he was just getting chase after chase after chase. And that's something the Astros did very well. On the other side is they did not chase. And the strategy, the game plan that worked so well for CC Sabathia earlier in the series just didn't work so well. He was still trying to get them to chase every which way, but they were just not swinging at anything outside of the strike zone, with the exception of Evan Gaddis, who hit a home run. So that was working for them. And, and the Yankees just could not seem to stop chasing Lance McCullers' curveball or to make meaningful contact with it and I mean the audacity of doing that in a game seven of just saying yeah forget about fastballs that was incredible to see yeah so I mean I think this works for a couple reasons one is that it's it's sort of why everybody got so frustrated with Aaron Judge where he couldn't lay off the the low slider or he was you know he was laying it off but sometimes he was just swinging over it and the difference coming out of the hand or or, um, or even at the point where you have to decide to swing the bat between a fastball and the slider you know a fastball at the knees and a slider in the dirt is not that great and McCullers you know that when you think of the McCullers curveball it's that hard diving out of the zone sort of off yeah. the table pitch and you know even if he's thrown 24 of them in a row, every hitter up there knows he's got the change up, too. So they don't know if if it's coming, if it's going to be a sinker or a change or if it's going to drop out of the zone. And if you guess wrong, like we saw a judge guess wrong a couple times and just take like, no, this is no way it's a fastball. And sure enough, it's a fastball and he strikes out looking. The other thing mm -hmm. is so. You think of, of starting pitchers who are extremely, extremely curveball reliant. McCullers is one of the two that you think of. And, you know, I say. Curveball reliant starting pitcher. Who's the other guy you think of? Well, Rich Hill, except yeah. that he has now moved back toward a, a more fastball centric model, as I, I wrote recently. But yes, mm -hmm. you you definitely mentioned those two guys. So you think of of Hill's curveball, and this is something that what he does is he alters his grip, his finger pressure, his body shape, his arm angle, and so all of a sudden the curveball is. Yeah, it's looks a bunch like of different pitches. 13 basically. or 14 different <laughs> right. pitches. And, you know, you look at, there's a great video on MLB.com where you can see all 24 of those curveballs over and over. And I don't know, no more than a handful are really that that 
biting, diving off the table pitch that we just talked about. Some of them are, you know, there's a difference about five miles an hour in velocity. Some are up in the zone. Some of them just sort of float up and catch a corner. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's you think about him just throwing one pitch. It's not really one pitch. And then you take into account location. And, you know, that's when the curveballs as good as McCullers is, then, you know, it's just really, really difficult to hit. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. I just think, you know, 24 straight curveballs is awesome and it's audacious. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I I love the that he and McCann had the stones to go out and do that. But it's not exactly 24, the exact same pitch. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, it, it was just an impressive display by the Astros in these last couple of games. And defensively, of course, there were a few fine plays in game seven, both Aaron Judge robbing a home run off Yuli Gurriel on almost an identical batted ball, almost identical to the one that Carlos Correa homered on in in game two. It was literally a a two-foot difference or one degree Mm -hmm. of launch angle, and Judge managed to get to this one. And, of course, maybe the signature play of the game was Alex Bregman coming home with the ball in the fifth inning when the Astros had a 1-0 lead and just perfectly, perfectly placing the throw right into Brian McCann's glove, which he didn't even have to move. And it was just sitting there waiting for Greg Bird's foot. And the two of them just sort of slid into the plate together. And that was that. And the Yankees really didn't rally, didn't mount much of a threat for the rest of the game because Morton and McCullers, the combination were just incredible. It was it was funny because before the game, Joe Girardi was talking about how, you know, he doesn't need to use starters or he his inclination is not to use starting pitchers in relief. And that makes sense because the Yankees have that deep bullpen. And Hinch was going on and on about how, you know, what we have 12 pitchers. We might use all of them today. There there's nothing we wouldn't do. And of course, Verlander was potentially on the table as an option for an inning or two. And, you know, he managed to get through this game without using a regular reliever. And that's something that has some bearing on the World Series. So I'm sure that we'll talk about that shortly. But if you had told me that the Astros would get through this game with just Morton and McCullers and shut out the Yankees, I would have been very surprised. I was very surprised, but it was a lot of fun to watch. I mean, on the other hand, if you said they just used Morton and McCullers, you'd think that both of them are pitching well or else, you know, there would have been some Will Harris sprinkled in there. The other thing, you know, makes it a little difficult to sort of, you know, the way I I talked about this uh, this morning, that the way Hinch managed his pitching staff throughout uh, the ALCS is very much like a. You know, it, not to make you roll your eyes, but this is how you come through the losers bracket in a regional in in college baseball. <laughs> yeah, like you've got your one or two aces, and then you know your Friday and Saturday starter, and once they're gone, you just go with whoever you trust at that particular moment in time. And sometimes you bring guys back on short rest. Sometimes you put guys in unfamiliar situations. Sometimes, like with McCullers, you bring in a reliever in the sixth inning, and if he keeps getting guys out, then just just roll with it. And mm-hmm. that's and the Astros sort of have that flexibility because apart from Verlander, Keuchel and uh and Morton, a lot of their starters sort of have that the capacity to come out of the bullpen. Yeah. You know, a lot of Peacock, people still think McHugh. yes. And McCullers a lot of people still think he ultimately uh ends up in the bullpen and you know, maybe we saw a glimpse of of the relief pitcher that he could be if that's where he ends up. hundred percent curveball closer. I mean, it's not that, not that shocking. Hey, Kelly you know, Jansen Mariano Rivera has one pitch. Yeah, sure. Kelly Jansen has one pitch, you know. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about more maybe about how that shakes out for the world series. And if AJ Hinch actually trusts anyone in his bullpen right now and, and whether he should, but I guess this is a prime opportunity to tag in Heidi Klum, right. And play our, yeah. our project runway clip, which we haven't had a chance to, to play in a couple of weeks, but to memorialize, For the Cubs, right? Yes, we, we forgot the, the Cubs yeah. and the Yankees, the two teams that have been eliminated since the last time we spoke. So take it away. Cue up the clue. You basically took yourself out of this competition. In this business, it's all about selling yourself. You admitted that you were the weakest of your team, and that gave us no choice. You're out. Okay. Can I go now? All right. So, I mean, it feels about a million years ago that the Cubs were eliminated, but we should pay our respects to them and also to the Yankees. Fine seasons, both of them. I think they have very Mm -hmm. 
different feelings and and aftertastes to them just because of where they were coming, where the expectations were coming into the year. The Cubs were expected to roll over everyone in the Central and maybe make it back to the World Series. And they had to scrap it out to win the division and then didn't make it as far as they had the previous year, whereas the Yankees, of course, were not really expected to be nearly as good as they were and, and to make it as deep as, as they did at this point. So different different sort of uh, lingering maybe after images of these seasons for fans of these respective teams. But I think they both fall into the category of, well, they'll be back. I mean, most of the teams yeah. that we've talked about getting eliminated so far this October, it it hasn't really been like a, a mournful tolling of the bells, like here they go into the long, dark night of a rebuild or something like that, like we did with kind of maybe the Tigers, their last playoff appearance. We had the sense that something is coming to a close. That is not the case here. I, I think that's the case with Washington, particularly. Yeah, I mean, we probably more won't enough. have. Yeah, they've got one more shot mm-hmm. at it, and like that's that pressure's ratcheting up. Well, I think the the Cubs probably have more to do than the Yankees do this offseason. Just uh, I think the Yankees are returning maybe a higher percentage of their roster, have fewer pressing questions to address, or or glaring holes somewhere on the roster that they need to fill, which. I don't think that the Cubs are any less likely to make it back to a championship series next year. I think they obviously have to figure out their starting pitching. They're, you know, losing Arietta potentially and, and, that was a weakness for them down the stretch anyway and lackey. And so they have some questions to answer there. And of course they have maybe an excess of position players or pieces that don't fit together perfectly, whether it's Schwarber or Ian Happ not having a place to play or Javi Baez being a qualified shortstop, but playing second base. So there are a lot of moving parts there that they could trade for a pitcher if they want to, but more questions there, I guess, but definitely not unanswerable questions questions yeah and you know you mentioned the starting pitching they still bring back lester hendricks and quintana for next year and that was you know part of why quintana costs so much in that trade is that he's young and he's caught well i mean relatively young and he's cost controlled Mm -hmm. like you know this is i think the the consensus last year was after winning this world series the cubs were well set up to maybe win another title or two in the next five years and i don't think that any you know i don't think that that's changed no. at all based on on their exit, you know, based on Arietta probably leaving, based on Arietta losing his beard. <laughs> yes. Um, it took like 20 years off, would, I think, just seeing him. Absolutely startling. It really was. Uh, you know, you mentioned Schwarber and Hap. I might try to cash in on Javi. Like, Javi Baez right now is the captain of the cooler than he is yeah, big team. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know what that does for his trade value, but I would, you know, almost. You know, you could live with with Hap at second base, even though you might probably want him in a in the outfield long term. You know, I don't know if, like, I I'm I'd be inclined to keep Hap and just sort of eat the Ben Zobris contract and sort of keep him around as a utility guy. But Schwar- I you know, Schwarber was a defensive liability throughout the playoffs. Like the Cubs are getting, they have maybe the best first baseman in baseball, mm-hmm. and Schwarber's a first baseman slash DH yeah. and. You know, as such, they have less use for him than any other team. So if he's the guy that they need to trade to go get that fourth starter, then I would do it without hesitation. Mm-hmm. Like he's, you can you can find another bat, or you can live with, you know, with reduced uh, offensive production, such as it is from uh, from dropping Schwarber. So they, you know, even though their farm system's depleted. They still have avenues mm-hmm. to go get it, to say nothing of all the money that they've made printing world championship T-shirts <laughs> over the past 12 months. Yeah, they're going to be fine. And the Yankees, yeah. again, they were ahead of the expected timeline here. So I don't see any reason why this is not the beginning of maybe an even longer lasting and demoralizing to every non-Yankee fan in the world run of just, again, not winning the World Series every year. I think the way that baseball is constructed now, you just... It's not even, yeah, it doesn't make sense to say this team is set up to be a dynasty. I mean, some teams are, 
to the extent that you can be, but the game is just not structured in a way that lends itself to that. But they are set up, I think, to to keep making the playoffs and, and keep contending for years to come, of course. So, you know, we, we talk about Cleveland being well set up to win that division the way that's going. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what the Orioles are doing. I think the, the Blue yeah. Jays are one of those teams that had the... Um, you know, sort of had the end yeah. of an era feeling and right. Tampa Bay is always sort of a wild card. We might be back to, you know, after yeah. a decade of, of fun, you know, back to <laughs> another decade like... of Red Sox versus Yankees. Yeah. And then, you know, the Central's going to be depleted. I don't know what Texas looks like next year. Seattle might just be stuck on 85 wins for the rest of Jerry Depoto's tenure. Like that, mm-hmm. you know, particularly with the two wild cards, it won't be difficult for them to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some some team will surprise us, of course. But looking at next season now, before any of the offseason stuff happens, it it does seem as if things are maybe a little more set than they typically are at this point. Yeah, we should talk about the World Series though before we ruin all our offseason content. We should. Uh, right. we're, we're gonna have nothing to talk <laughs> yeah, about between right. between now and February if we you know we keep talking about what the Cubs might do and trade and you know yes. how the Yankees might. Good point. Smart thinking. Planning ahead. All right, let's take a quick break. Hear from our. Sp- Sponsor. We'll be back to talk World Series. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringers Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta, and they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's Make Believe Casino where Sal makes up props on on all kinds of things, sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So World Series time. World Series starts tomorrow in Los Angeles. And I'm very excited for this series. I think there's so many reasons to be excited for this series. I almost feel like I'm more in the position of a hype man for this series than an analyst of this series. Just I agree. Just, I'm, I'm very, very excited for yeah, this Yeah, it's, it's partly that I'm excited for the matchup, and it's partly that these teams are so good that I don't know that there are that many weaknesses to dwell on. And, and we'll talk about the Astros bullpen in, in just a second here, but we're talking about two teams that won more than 100 games, and the stat has been making the rounds for first World Series matchup between 200 win teams since 1970, which is surprising. But it's uh, these are the two teams that we would have said at midseason, those are your World Series favorites. And here mm-hmm. they are. And they don't have a whole lot of weaknesses. And usually in a series, I mean, really, the, the weaker a team is, I suppose, the easier it is for people like us to come in and poke holes and say, here's the vulnerability. Here's how you can get to them. And with the Dodgers and the Astros, it's very difficult to find that kind of weakness that's that's glaring. I mean, each of them has, you know, little holes here and there, but relative to the typical team, both of these teams are solid top to bottom. Yeah, they're so weird. You know, you don't get this, you know, sort of you know this is the best team in each league. Like it's been you know, yeah. in, in 2013, the, the teams with the two best records in baseball were the the Red Sox and Cardinals. But even then that was a uh, uh, that Red Sox team was sort of, that sort of felt like a one off flute, mm-hmm. like it sort of came together all at once and then disappeared just as, uh, you know, just as quickly. And, you know, past that, you know, you have three titles, one on smoke and mirrors by the Giants. You have a Cardinals title where they snuck in on the last day of the season. You have a couple weird Royals appearances. <laughs> you know, you go back yeah. to. You know, probably 2009 was the last time where you came in or feeling or last year. I guess you could have made the case about last year, certainly with the Cubs. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So certainly the Cubs. I don't know if the I I don't know if there was a clear favorite in the AL. mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that limits, I I guess, the, the weaknesses that we can point out. But we can start maybe with the Astros pitching questions and as you mentioned it's kind of Verlander and Keuchel and then some uncertainty and 
you can see that A.J. Hinch really did not want to go to his bullpen or at least to call on someone who spent considerable time in his bullpen this season in those last couple of games. And when Verlander was pulled from game six after seven innings, he went right to Brad Peacock for an inning as an eighth inning setup man, which is not really the role that he was in for most of the year. Mm-hmm. And then he went to Giles for an inning. And then in game seven, he got through the whole thing without using a reliever. And you can understand why the pen in the ALCS prior to game seven, the collective ERA of the bullpen was 5.93. And if you toss out Colin McHugh's game three innings, then it goes up to 8.38. And the pen was not great in the ALDS either. So you can understand why Hinch is, is hesitant to use these guys. On the other hand, they were good for most of the year. These guys, Davinsky and Gregerson and Harris, and maybe not quite as dominant as some of the Yankees relievers, for instance, or even the Dodgers. But I mean, in the same way that we were saying when the Astros scored nine runs over five games, we said, well, come on, this is a great offense and we know they're going to be fine. And then they scored 11 runs over the next two days. And You can't say quite the same thing about their bullpen because obviously their bullpen is not the equivalent of their offense, which is one of the best of all time. But still, solid group of guys. And you do have to wonder whether he has reason to lose trust in them aside from a few shaky out and over a couple of weeks. Yeah, I, it's, what what's really killing them is Davinsky is not pitching well right now, and he wasn't mm-hmm. as much of a multi-inning guy as he was uh, last year. But I, I mean, even if you assume that Ken Giles is okay, that you trust him to go get the traditional save, and you know, I think that just with his his manner of pitching, I, you know, I don't know if he's the particular type of closer that that I would want to stretch for more than, I don't know, maybe four outs or so. He's just so high effort. It's And just if, if he loses even a little bit off the fastball on the slider, it's it's very difficult mm-hmm. uh, difficult for him to get swings and misses. But Davinsky being that second guy, particularly a guy who can pitch to batters from both sides of the plate, who can get you potentially all the way through a lineup, you know, he would have been a real weapon if this was last year's Chris mm-hmm. Davinsky. And then there's just other guys... You know, you see this happen to good relievers. I don't know if it's the quality of play goes up or if it's pressure or if it's something else, but this just happens that they just can't hack it in anything, you know, in any kind of high pressure situation. And, you know, I I trust Musgrove in a, in a high pressure situation. I would trust Harris in a high pressure situation. They just haven't pitched all that well uh, this postseason. So on the other hand, a lot was made of this in the aftermath of McCullers throwing four innings in relief with the Astros, the Astros a few years ago were doing tandem starting when uh, they were bringing guys mm-hmm. through the minor league. So McCullers came yeah, up, AA, yeah, McCullers came up like this. Davinsky came up like that as a, a tandem starter as well. So these, a lot of these guys have experience sort of going, turning over the lineup twice and then calling it a night. And so if you think mm-hmm. that you can get, you know, full starts from, uh, from Keuchel and Verlander in games one and two and games five and six, then you can, you know, I think it was it was good to see McHugh pitch that well, even in a mop-up role, because you know, he was hurt, but he pitched pretty well this season. You know, I didn't really understand mm-hmm. leaving him off the division series roster unless they thought that they just wouldn't have a place to use him. But you could, you know, you could piggyback Morton and McCullers. You could piggyback Peacock and, and McHugh and sort of get you... Mm-hmm twice through the order, you know, from from each guy, get into the the seventh or eighth, and then maybe you only have to find two or three outs before you get to Giles. Yeah. So it wouldn't shock me if that if something like that ends up being the plan. What is that? Seven pitchers that you're using? And, you know, I don't there's enough rest. There's uh, enough flexibility that I don't think that that piggybacking for three of these potentially seven games would be that big an issue. But I mean, the risk you run into is one of these guys has an off day. And that's certainly, you know, we saw Morton get unlucky. We saw Peacock get torched in the, in the division series. So that's a, that's the risk you run, but that's, if I were AJ Hinch, that's how I would approach it. Yeah. And you're right. I think that's an important point that a lot of these guys have had somewhat blurry lines between starting and relieving at some point in their career and I'll, I'll I'll you know sort of cut that opinion a little bit with at this point you know three or four years down the road I don't know how much how Lance McCullers pitched at Corpus really impacts his ability to 
you know, to piggyback sure. in a World Series yeah. game, but it's just it's it's an information point. Yeah, and even at the major league level, even this season, guys like Peacock, for instance, have been going back and forth, and and maybe that prepares you a little because, in theory, at least, you take any starter and you put him in the bullpen and. You say, hey, throw your best pitches only and throw a little as hard as you possibly can. And in theory, they should be more effective on a per inning basis. But you never know. There's always some uncertainty there because guys haven't pitched in that role and maybe they're not as comfortable in that role. But these guys have had some exposure, at least certainly by this point, even if it's just this postseason, that you worry less about that. So you're right. I I think... You know, maybe there are some guys in the bullpen that that Hint should be trusting more. And you do have to wonder about the mindset of these relievers whom Hinch has clearly kind of gone away from. Like, how how's morale in the Astros bullpen these days? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember if I ever went on that rant in Slack, but like it's, this is a really clear indication. I, you know, I remember thinking this about. Uh, Dave Roberts last year and Don Mattingly with the Dodgers years before that when, you know, when the whoever the Dodgers manager at the time uh, just stops trusting everybody but Kershaw and Jansen. Like what happens when you have to use one of those guys? Like, you know, what have you you've just you might as well have, you know, sent him an email that says, yeah. I don't trust you. Now go get me six outs in the, you know, game six right. of the World yeah. Series. You know, I guess on the other hand, this is not the part of the season where you worry about morale or people's feelings. You're just trying to to keep the season going. But, yeah, I do wonder about, you know, sort of the, the medium term effects of, yeah. of really shortening your bench at this point. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely do whatever works just to get through this series. I mean, whether it's using starters and relief or or throwing 24 consecutive curveballs, if it's working, whatever you need to get to the World Series and, and win it, that's that's what you should do. So I think that the things I'm most excited for in this series, and it's odd because I think about head-to-head matchups in a way in this series, like Kershaw Verlander or the fighting shortstops here where you have Correa versus Seager. And baseball isn't really a sport that lends itself to face-offs like that. I mean, their teams are facing each other. It's not as if they are guarding each other or something like that. Or Kershaw and Verlander's case, they're probably not even pitching the same game. So it doesn't really work the way it it would necessarily in in basketball, for instance, or even in football. But it's still pretty compelling that we're going to get these two aces who are as watchable as any pitchers in baseball right now. And I think that has to be close to the top of the list of why everyone's excited for this first Kershaw trip to the World Series. And Justin Verlander, I mean, that's that's one in one a maybe in what I'm looking forward to most. This series might break a record for pitchers who I just love to watch. Between Hill, Verlander, <laughs> McCullers, Darvish. Darvish. Yeah, we didn't even mention Darvish. I don't know if, if Kershaw is like one of the the three starting pitchers in this series who I personally enjoy <laughs> watching the most. Um, yeah. You know, honestly, like this is a very non-analytical opinion. The thing I'm most excited for out of this uh out of the series is there's gonna be somebody who's been waiting a long time for a ring who who deserves it, who's going to get one. Like, this is yeah. going to be the Carlos Beltron, Beltron, you know, Beltron and Verlander, <laughs> yeah. even Brian McCann on the on the other side, or you're going to get that validating ring for Kershaw and you're the end of the wait for Rich Hill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the hilarious potential off-season social media implications of Yasiel Puig with the, like, <laughs> if, if the Dodgers win, I think Major League Baseball should issue some Stanley Cup-like implement just so Puig yes, can please. take it around with him all offseason. <laughs> yes, that'd be great. Puig and, and Kike Hernandez oh, hit man. the road with the World Series. That, that, <laughs> yeah, I think... Yeah, that, that might not that, be able to go on Instagram. You might have to move that to no, Cinemax. We, we might need to... Yeah, <laughs> that might need to be streaming. But yeah, I think... I mean, it's the players who've waited a long time and obviously it's the fan bases who've also waited a long time and okay, maybe neither of these weights rises quite to the level of Cubs Indians. You can't really beat that for for title droughts, I guess. But with the Dodgers, you're still talking about 29 years, and with the Astros, literally forever. One, and so, I mean, for people yeah. like we're not exactly young, but for you and me, the difference between 29 years and forever in terms of, of memory, there there is no meaningful difference between the two. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, each of these fan bases has a, a strong claim to waiting a long time and and being rewarded for that wait here. And you're right, there are veterans. And of course, there's the great array of young stars and guys who are right now at the top of their game and best player in baseball level, whether it's Kershaw or Altuve, or I guess you could even put Seager in that conversation. But Seager and Correa, of course, are are the future. I mean, they are the the star shortstops of each respective league for the next decade plus. And hopefully Seager will actually get into this series. It seems as we record as if he is likely to make it back after having missed the LCS with a back injury. And just to see those guys again, not going head to head unless they're hitting each other grounders or something, mm-hmm. but just being in the spotlight here. It's, it's a lot of fun. And of course, the more Altuve we get, the better. I'm- I'm really, really happy that he has had that the kind of breakout postseason that he's had because I think to I mean I know he was uh he was right up there in the running for MVP last year and I know that the Astros have been in the playoffs so they've been a pretty you know, they're a big market team but I still really felt like he was underrated and uh, just you're mm-hmm. there he's I think his reputation suffered because for a while he was just the short guy. And like he was the just the short guy. He was, you know, sort of an okay, yeah. you know, average ish, maybe, you know, fringe average starter at second base. And he just got so much better over the past four four years. And it's really mm-hmm. cool to see him, you know, earn that level of celebrity as well as uh or you know, maybe yeah. not celebrity, but but recognition as as well as um statistical performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've got Yasiel Puig, of course, is always watchable, but has been totally tearing it up in both of these postseason series. He's the only clutch Dodger. (laughs) This is what I've been saying since the losing streak. He is most clutch. (laughs) And Justin Turner, of course, Mm -hmm. has been doing the same. And he is hard (laughs) to to look away from whether he's playing baseball or not. So uh, there's just a, a lot of compelling TV here, a lot of compelling personalities, and two of the best teams in baseball may be the two best teams in baseball, so you really couldn't ask for much more with a World Series matchup than than these two guys, and as, uh, Anthony Kastrovince at, at MLB.com even pointed out it's like a, a matchup of maybe the two best utility guys in baseball mm-hmm. now. It's Chris Taylor versus Marwin Gonzalez. I don't know if that gets you going quite as much as Kershaw Verlander, but well, the point is... I think is, we wrote about both of those of guys teams, you know, in that in that lens, I don't know. I guess it depends yeah. on on whether you view Jose Ramirez as a utility guy or whether you think mm-hmm. he's he's nailed out of position. Right. But that mm-hmm. is neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, the point is that both of these teams are just so strong top to bottom that like they even have the best guy who doesn't have a position, maybe, and just plays all the different positions because their lineups go so deep and their whole pitching staffs go so deep. It's just it's going to be a lot of fun. And I don't know whether you see any edges here whether I was just one about team, to ask you because we're like we're talking about how really hard. like how cool this is and, you know we're just being, <laughs> being like this is legitimate excitement I don't think this you know I hope this doesn't come off as us hedging or trying not to piss anybody off but like these are two awesome really really fun teams so yeah yeah, I I don't even I mean, right now, if you if you look at the projection systems, if you look at the odds, I, I think the Dodgers are slightly favored. And of course, they do have home field advantage. And that has at least in, in recent rounds seemed to matter. And for instance, 538 right now has the Dodgers as a, a 55 45 favorite in the series. I don't even know if I'd consider the difference that big, but it's it's a slight edge. And I don't know that I see that many places where I say, well, this team matches up perfectly with that team or there is a clear edge here or some weakness that this team is perfectly positioned to exploit. Yeah, I mean, we talked we talked about the Astros bullpen pretty much nonstop over the past 10 days, you and I. So I don't think we need to belabor that. And I think that to a certain extent that doesn't matter if they're hitting and to a certain extent Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter if Morton McCullers and McHugh are pitching well so Mm -hmm. like there are ways to get around that the other thing I'd say is I don't know that they would scare me as an Astros fan any more or any less than the weak half of the Dodger lineup would if I were a Dodger Mm -hmm. fan because you know they're you can get out some places like, you know, Granderson is just did Curtis Granderson forget to pack his bats when he got <laughs> traded? Because yeah. like it's 
I, I would yeah. like at this point I'd consider leaving him off the roster. And by the time you're listening yeah. to this, the the rosters might have been published already. But you know, somebody mm-hmm. was asking me, do you you know do you leave Cul- uh, Charlie Culberson off uh, when Seager comes back? And you know, I think that's a perfectly valid choice to make since he's a direct replacement. But you know, considering mm-hmm. that Taylor can play both infield and outfield, that Hernandez can play both infield and outfield, I'm you know I might I might drop Granderson just because he he just looks yeah. lost. Yeah, and Granderson has looked done before and, and hasn't been, and he was perfectly fine with the Mets before the trade, so I'm not necessarily writing him off forever, but yeah, he, he has not looked good. And and Culberson, it, it it almost feels cruel to, to, to demote him because filling in for Seager, he yeah. had, I, I think, a better offensive series than anyone on the Cubs, which is just not fair. That's just how thoroughly the Dodgers demolished the Cubs is that Charlie Culberson filling in for the actual star had a better series than any Cub offensively. So that's, I mean, that's just another instance of the Dodgers being deep. And, you know, it's like Yasmany Grandal would be a, a great starting catcher for a lot of teams. And now he's getting pushed or pushed aside yeah, by Austin I, Barnes. And it's just <laughs> every position, there's someone else just waiting in the wings. That That is, it's, you know, that is sort of the challenge of for Dave Roberts because the that's sort of the way that the Dodgers were built, really, apart from... There are some guys who are meant to play in all situations. You know, you expected 33 starts out of Kershaw, even though you didn't get him. You know, you'd expect Seager to play in all situations. You'd expect Turner to play in all situations. You'd expect probably expect Puig to play in all situations. And then after that, it's sort of mixing and matching. Who's best for which matchup? Who hits lefties better? Who's better defensively? Mm-hmm. Who's faster? You know, which of these starting pitchers are we trying to keep healthy at any given time? So... I mean, the challenge with the Dodgers, I mean, this is certainly an easier challenge to overcome than just not having those players, but choosing Mm -hmm. who's the right guy who's going to produce on a night to night basis is very difficult for a manager. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, whether you go to Logan Forsythe or whether you go to Culberson or whether you go to Utley, you know, at second, you know, second base, I think is another situation where situationally and, you know, this happened in the the championship series a couple times, like there was a double switch where somehow it involved the, the second baseman. I think they've just got so many options there and none of them are really perfect for any one thing so this is going to be a busy you know as much as AJ Hinch has to figure out who's going to pitch whatever Keuchel and Verlander aren't pitching that's going to be the big challenge for Dave Roberts is sort of managing around you know the the various weaknesses of his center fielders, his second baseman, you know, yeah, I think he's sort of settled in on Austin Barnes as his catcher. And I think, you know, you'd be mm-hmm. okay with Granderson there if Barnes weren't pushing him the way he were. One advantage that I, I might speculate that the Dodgers have is just in the fact that their starters have not racked up a lot of innings this year, mm-hmm. kind of by design in that the Dodgers have been pretty aggressive about using the 10-day DL to give guys a blow here and there. And they've just, you know, had so many viable starters at certain points that they've just been able to skip guys or, or give guys extra rest. And some of them have just missed time. And so Clayton Kershaw led the Dodgers in innings pitched at 175. And of course, he missed a chunk of the season too. So I don't know whether that's an advantage. I don't know that we can quantify that, but you have Kershaw at 175. You have Hill at 135. Of course, he missed all that time early in the year with blister issues. And then Alex Woods at 152. And I just, I don't know whether that means that they have more left in the tank at this point in the season. And it's not as if the Astros rotation has been heavily worked either, with the exception of Verlander, who made it over 200 innings, but he's had many more innings. Clearly not. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, Keiko missed time and he's at 145 in the regular season. And Morton was right around there. And Peacock was fewer than that. And McCullers was fewer than that. So I don't know. Some of those were injury absences and maybe in a way that comes back to help those guys if they are fully healthy now. Maybe no one, you know, we're not talking about anyone's innings limit being maxed out at this point in the season or trying to push them past their previous high. All these guys are 
sort of far from the end of their ropes as far as we can determine. But I guess that really applies to both teams in a way. Yeah. And what I'd say about guys being, you know, guys like you mentioned Hill and Wood and then Morton and McCullers in particular on the Astros side, like 150 innings for them isn't the same thing as 150 innings for Keuchel or Verlander or Kershaw. Yeah. You know, part of the Mm -hmm. reason that the Dodgers had to go, you know, get seven or eight starting pitchers is because they you just like some of those guys are going to be hurt at any given moment and that's Mm -hmm. just the kind of bodies and careers that that guys like Wooden Hill have so you know they're healthy now I don't know what that means from a fatigue perspective uh you know Mm -hmm. I, I thought you know Wood was okay in in his division series start you know Hill's been been good I think what one spot it might help the Dodgers in is that they've played three fewer games over the course of the postseason than the Astros have and they've had Mm -hmm. you know and they're uh, they're going to have two extra days off so they can set up you know not only set up Kershaw to go in game one and I don't I don't know it's a huge difference you know Keuchel versus Verlander uh, against Kershaw but one thing that this does it is it all but eliminates the the possibility of a Verlander return appearance in game seven for instance like if you're going to bring mm-hmm. Verlander in out of the pen like they did in game four of the division series I don't know where you do it with his rest schedule the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that maybe has been the difference for Kershaw in this postseason or Possibly is that he just hasn't been asked to do as much as he has in previous Dodgers postseason runs where he was starting on short rest regularly. And even if he pitched pretty well in short rest, then you wonder about some sort of hangover effect the next time he pitches. And he just hasn't had to do that in this postseason. And he won't have to do that in this series. It looks like he's going to go one in five if necessary. And then maybe he comes back for a dramatic relief appearance late in the series if it goes that far. But but he has just not been stressed and maybe he is just not up to that sort of stress anymore just with the back issues he's had over the last couple mm-hmm. of years. But that has probably stood him in good stead here as we approach November. When I was writing about the the weird managerial decisions, one thing that stuck out was Roberts until he decided to to let Darvish hit for himself in uh, in game three yeah. of the at LCS, like he hadn't been pushed to a point where he needed to get desperate because like, I mean, that's the ideal is you just win every series easily and then, you <laughs> right. you know, you never have to make a difficult decision. But, you know, I think that that the Astros have a better capacity, you know, no dis- disrespect to the Cubs and the Diamondbacks, but I think the Astros have a better capacity to, to push the Dodgers into that kind of difficulty. I would agree with that. And of course, there's always that age old debate about do you want to just cruise through and then sit and have some days off or do you want to be pushed to the brink and you're you're finely tuned because you had to play in a game seven. I mean, and it's... Ultimately, I don't know that it actually matters all that much. I think once you get into the World Series, the adrenaline yeah. gets going and, and you're looking at six months of rest or not quite, but almost afterwards. There but... are some situations where having one or the other has some kind of effect, but it's one of those things where it's impossible to tell until yeah. until it's too late. And in any event, the Dodgers are, are going to have, what, four days off? This is not like when the Rockies swept the, the NLCS in 2007 and wound up waiting for more than a week until the Red Sox finished off Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Like this is, you know, four days off is it's more than you get at any point in the regular season, but it's not like they, they've been on vacation. Like, you know, they, no. they, they've been at this recently enough to, to stay focused. And I think that... Yeah. Being able to set up their rotation, I think, will, will be a big benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would take the rest if given the choice. So we'll have a, a couple more episodes during this series. Of course, we'll be talking on Thursday and we'll be talking next Monday and we'll be checking in as this series is going on. So we'll, we'll get into even more of it once it begins. But- One last thing. Uh, so this is the sort of thing that I'm going to hedge a lot because I really should have checked with Zach to make sure that what I'm going to say is actually the truth. But near as I can tell, <laughs> like we talked about for Verlander and and Beltron and and um, uh, Brian McCann never having won a, a ring. I don't think anybody on the on the Astros has, and it's not for you know lack of veterans. It's not for lack of guys who's been there. But if uh, this team wins the World Series, then they would be the first team since the 2002 Angels to have to win the World Series without having anybody on the roster who's done it before. And of course, I say <laughs> nobody on the 2002 Angels. Uh, there was one player who had won a ring before who had appeared in two regular season games and got one 
at bat. Would you like to to guess who that who that <laughs> ring winner who who appeared in two games for the Angels uh, was? I do not know. Clay Bellinger. Father of Cody. Oh, of course. Of course. One of my favorites. Clay Bellinger, during the brief period when I collected autographs, which just didn't last long, I, I didn't really ever see the appeal. But during that brief period, Clay Bellinger was one of the first players whose autographs I ever got. And he tossed me a, a ball or I got him to sign a ball in spring training, one of those years when he was with the Yankees. And Clay Bellinger has three World Series rigs. <laughs> so I think Cody may be better in in every respect talent wise, but he has a long way to go to catch up to his dad. Yeah. I always, I always got, uh, clay, uh, clay Bollinger and Kirk Bollinger and Brian Bullington confused. (laughs) That's understandable. (laughs) All right. So before we wrap up, let's just spend a couple minutes on the managerial news dump day that we just lived through since the last time I spoke with you, I guess the Tigers have hired Ron Gardenhire. I don't know if we we heard about that before our last podcast. And then, of course, Dusty Baker let go by the Nationals. And we've had some hirings, too. The Red Sox, it seems, have hired Alex Cora. The Mets have reportedly offered and are finalizing their deal with Mickey Calloway. So lots of managerial comings and goings in this day or two before the World Series. And obviously, the, the headline move there is Dusty and that's the one that I think has been the most controversial and has provoked the strongest reaction certainly on Ringer MLB Slack so what's your take on the end of the Dusty era in DC I'm sure I've made some snide joke about Aaron Harang and Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor in the past couple years but like if that's seriously your take on Dusty Baker in this day and age it like I don't know that he's an awesome tactical manager. Like he's he's not like breaking new new tactical ground or anything like that. But he pulled together a very difficult clubhouse mm-hmm. to pull together. He won the division two years in a row, won 90 games two years in a row. You know, he brought a team together that was literally at each other's throats when he took over. And, you know, and, you know, yes. the guy he took over from Matt Williams, you want to talk about bad tactical managers like it's if you're still mm-hmm. harping on on the 2003 Cubs, like non-ironic. If that's your non-ironic take about Dusty Baker, then you're adding yourself as not having paid attention. Like, yes, right. Dusty has evolved. And and not only that, like in talking about Dusty, we're not at a, a point where tactics are really the most important thing a manager does. Like, you know, we and, you know, he's it was working. You know, this this is, you know, they talk There's been a lot of the what about Jose Lobatone coming off the bag for a split second. I mean, that break in itself wouldn't have swung game five. But if any two of three things that had happened, you know, happened differently yeah. throughout the course of that uh, throughout the course of that series, we're not having this conversation. This is a panic move. And, you know, the list of things that the Washington Nationals manager has to do and he he has to win in his first year before Harper leaves and they want to do this apparently on the yep. cheap. Where are you going to find that guy? Who do you know is out there that is going to be better than Dusty Baker? Dusty Baker is one of very, you know, one of the most successful managers of color in in recent major league history. He certainly that mm-hmm. that track record of success has never been stronger than in his couple years with the Nationals and you know, I just it's mitigated somewhat by Alex Cora being the heir presumptive in Boston. So, but it's I just don't know who they're going to get. I don't know who wants to take that job. And, you know, we could talk about this with Mickey Calloway in, in the the do you want to take this job <laughs> right. sweepstakes. But that's that's exactly the job I would want to take. <laughs> Mets manager. I mean, you can't possibly do worse or have you, a worse sure? reputation so, than the last guy. I mean, so Mickey Calloway, like this, this is like he strikes me as the hot coordinator in college football. And so uh-huh. many guys will go jump at the first head coaching opportunity that they get, and it just turns into an impossible situation where there's clown shoes ownership, where there's no, or you know, in I guess a clown shoes AD and boosters, where there's high expectations, where there's no budget, where there's you know the talent pipeline is not that great, you know, at, particularly when you consider how 
difficult it's been to, for the Mets to field that starting rotation all at once since 2015. I don't know what Matt Harvey is at this point. I don't know if Steven Matz is ever going to qualify, no. qualify for an ERA title. Noah Syndergaard's pitched, what, once since April? Like, mm-hmm. are you sh- like, that's... <laughs> That's the cross I you mean, want to die on with the, your first managerial job as right. one of the the hottest, most well regarded pitching coaches in baseball. To say like, and it's not like I know that Mickey Calloway, you know, sounds like a guy who was born in 1883, but he's 42 years old. He's gonna yeah. have other shots. Yeah, he sounds like a golfer to me. But I think right. I mean, the the pitching coach to manager transition is still fairly rare. Maybe it's becoming more common. John Farrell did it, obviously. I don't really have a good explanation for why that is either right no i don't either but i don't know what his opportunities were were like but i think i mean we just listed all the terrible things that befell the mets and i don't think mickey calloway is going to get the blame for any of those things so in that sense if he comes in and harvey's still bad and Mets is still hurt and Cindergard hurts himself again I don't know that anyone will blame. It, those are those are pre-existing How long have you lived in New York? How long Calloway's... have you been a sports fan in New York? And you're gonna you're gonna say that seriously? You don't think he's gonna get the blame? The whole thing okay, is he's well, a pitching he's guru. Get the blame, sure. You know, that he turned around Kluber, that he turned around Carrasco and Bauer, and now he's got this ultra high stakes, ultra broken starting pitching rotation with no resources with no mm-hmm. you know real sense of institutional control in terms of player development like if if right. he doesn't fix this <laughs> it's going to be his head and that might make it difficult for him to find a, a managerial position that he can actually succeed at to say nothing of i'm not it's positive possible. you know what that the good pitching coach or even good hitting coach to manager transition is one to one. It's a different set of it's a different set of skills. Sure. Yeah. I mean, right. You could make a case that just the whole Mets situation is so toxic that it can't work out well for anyone and you should just avoid it like some kind of Bermuda Triangle vortex. But I think there's potential at least for the team to bounce back. I mean, think of the upside, right? Think about if the Mets actually get through a reasonably healthy season and are contenders again and most of these pitchers actually pitch uh-huh. for them next year. Callaway sure. is a hero. They'll be throwing a ticker tape parade. What odds for do him. I need so, to give you to for you to bet on that happening? <laughs> there is a very high risk reward here. And I right, I think look, the fact that things were so dire and dismal before he got here, I think cushions him a little bit. And sure he'll yeah. take blame because fans will always blame whoever is there at a given moment if something's going wrong but and it makes sense from a a Mets perspective hire the pitching coach at least you won't have the manager presumably doing dangerous things the way that Terry Collins often seemed to where it was like why is this guy even pitching why is he in there probably Callaway will be more sensitive to that sort of issue so I see why they're doing it but you're right it could backfire spectacularly it it could also crown him as a genius and a visionary so yeah you know because walking but, into a tire fire Mets team worked out so well for Jerry Manuel like <laughs> right well maybe I don't know maybe maybe things can't get any worse and that was his reasoning or maybe he thinks I can actually help these guys I don't know maybe it's a maybe it's like a noble it's like doing some kind of community service just going to a disaster area and just building a house or something that is mickey calloway just trying to save trying to salvage yeah. what is left of this rotation it's gonna missionary but date that'll the be Mets. fascinating That's what's gonna... exactly right and i'm with you on, on dusty just to circle back on that i maybe there was bad blood here that we don't know about i think dusty was asking for an extension mid-season and didn't get one so and at that oh, point, I, I don't know how you could complain about think, the job he was doing. I think this is Mike Rizzo so, throwing another body in front of the bullets. Like this is could be. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's cheapness and not wanting to spend more on a manager. If so, that's very short sighted. But I'm with you. I mean, the Nationals have just seen the worst case scenario with Matt Williams, and we know you're not going to get that with Dusty. We know the players like him, and he's going to keep the clubhouse together. And I think he has improved enough tactically. I mean, right. sure, he what, does what, some strange what, things substantially, sometimes. You know, like the problem is the playoffs. What's substantially different in, about Dusty Baker right. in the playoffs in 2016 and 17 versus a guy that, you know, we're going out of no, our way to praise? I, and I just as soon have his hand on the wheel tactically as any first-time manager because I know that he's not going to panic. 
Like we're seeing this mm-hmm. even even yeah. smart first year managers or, you know, smart, inexperienced managers like Hinch and Roberts have, have made, you know, they've made questionable decisions in those pressure situations. And if nothing else, you know, nothing's going to scare Dusty Baker. He has seen everything. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. like he brought Scherzer out of the bullpen. He pulled Gio Gonzalez early. Like he's what are you going to do yeah. differently? Like, yeah, I, I don't know. Not. That Jason Worth yeah, second. Well, Jason Worth won't be, know. you know, you, there's an the easy way anyway. to eliminate that right. that temptation for next season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I mean, look, I think the long haul, the regular season getting to the playoffs is, is more important than what you do once you're there, at least from a hiring perspective. I mean, if you think a manager is so great in the clubhouse that it'll get you to the playoffs, but so terrible tactically that you'll never advance. Then sure, I just don't I, think I that's Dusty Baker. It, but I don't think Dusty's. No, I don't think he's in that category anymore. Maybe once he was, but he hasn't been for, yeah. for quite some time. I've I've one one quick thing about Ron Gardenhire, who I'm sure will come and go without us ever thinking about him again with the state of the Tigers. Uh, his <laughs> right, last four seasons in Minnesota, uh, he lost 90 games four years in a row, which is an astonishing feat for a manager yeah. in the age of uh-huh. people paying attention <laughs> in baseball. So I think the Tigers sort of. Yeah. Saw their team going in that direction anyway, and maybe wanted to to uh, steer into the skid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that guy oh, who's been there before has <laughs> yeah. lost a lot yeah, of games. Is, so that's what we want. You know, yeah. we talk about horses for courses. You know, this is the guy who's managed the kind of team mm. we're going to field. Yeah, he's had winners too, but not in the past decade, he hasn't get one right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this Ed, last thing. You know, I sort of alluded to this with Dusty, and not to. You know, I know that me going just shouting for 10 minutes has become a thing recently. This is not that. It's going to be another <laughs> offseason where Hensley Mullins doesn't get offered a managerial position, where DeMarlo Hale doesn't get offered a, a managerial position. Maybe one where Dave Martinez doesn't get offered a managerial position. So, you know, I don't know what the weight is. Yeah, I, I don't know. Certainly rather have any one of those guys rather than Garden Hire. Any one of them is just as qualified as Callaway, if not more so. They're more qualified than you know probably more qualified than than alex core who's got one year of big league coaching experience so yeah, our podcast just, guest sandy alomar yeah makes you wonder when you know when their turn on the the carousel is going to be mm-hmm. all right well it's going to be a fun week we will be back on thursday to discuss all the happenings in the world series you have been listening to the ringer mlb show part of the ringer podcast network <laughs>